We have been talking a lot about gas prices, about how high they might go. And uh, there have been a few stories as well about uh, the increased demand for electric vehicles or how, generally speaking, people are changing their driving habits or even their purchasing habits when it comes to vehicles. But a recent report that was put out by the International Energy Agency actually shows that Canada's vehicles have some of the highest average fuel consumption and the emissions per kilometer driven. So let's bring in Blake Shea a junk professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Calgary. Blake, thank you so much for being with us. Good morning, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, what, what is your take on this report that shows that Canada is right up there at the top of the list when it comes to big gas-guzzling vehicles? Yeah, I mean, I was kind of struck when I, when I read this report, and that's why I wrote that, that article about it. I guess it's no, not really a big surprise that Canada would be in the upper tier of, of fuel consumption, um, types of cars we like to drive and and quite simply um, uh, relative to the rest of the world our gas prices are are relatively cheap Um, I say that a little cautiously talking to a Vancouverite today Um, but what struck me was that we were number one I mean that that was really a surprise that we have the highest uh, average fuel consumption of our vehicles uh, per kilometer driven um, even more than, than the United States, which is notoriously a high user of gasoline. And it goes into this a little bit as far as why it is Canada's at the top. So so what can we take away from that? Is it because uh, we have such a big country with a small population, people are driving great distances, or because of the climate, more people are, are prone to get bigger trucks or more heavy-duty type vehicles? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly an element of preferences and, you know, driven largely by climate. So people feel a bit safer in a, in a, in a larger car, perhaps. The larger di- distances probably don't play a big um, role in the sense of, um, you know, if you're driving bigger distances, you probably want more, you know, better fuel economy uh, rather than worse. Um, but I think one of the, really quite simply, the, the biggest reason why Canada has these uh, worse fuel economy than, than most of the world is, um, our gas prices, on average across the country, are significantly lower um, than the rest of the world. So, what I'm really interested in is, you know, talking to to Vancouver today is is what the trend is going to look like in British Columbia, uh, you know, with 2019 data and beyond. Given where gas prices have gone, are we going to see that response in terms of people selecting? Um, more efficient cars or or likely all the way into electric vehicles, given the strong incentives you've got in the province. Well, and certainly, uh, like I mentioned, there have been some stories about people at least uh, checking it out or showing interest and in perhaps making uh, the shift. Is it also, if we look at countries in Europe that have the same types of vehicles, but are they ahead of Canada, do you think, as far as the the fuel economy and the, the vehicle itself being built in a way that's more efficient? Yeah, they, they do have more stringent fuel economy standards, no doubt. So, I mean, one of the interesting comparisons is comparing Canada to the Nordic countries like uh, Sweden and Finland. Similar climate, so we can't sort of blame climate for our situation. They have similar weight vehicles, similar size vehicles, but much lower fuel consumption and much lower CO2. Um, and that does come about from their um, fuel economy standards. There's a big, much bigger push for electric vehicles. There's also a higher rate of uh, uh, diesel cars there, which has some of their own issues, but does tend to produce less emissions at the tailpipe. So that, that's one of the reasons they're ahead of us. But I think fuel economy standards in general play a large role. Uh, North America is uh, doing a decent job there. 
uh, although that is being called into question with the, the U.S. administration is just um, uh, planned to slow down the rate of improvement for fuel economy under the, the new administration down there. And, and Canada tends to mirror uh, the fuel economy standards of the states. We do them in conjunction sort of makes sense given our manufacturing is all together. So that's an open question as to what that will mean for sort of the 2025 period. Will we get a, a slowdown in the improvements of fuel economy because the standards are being relaxed? Uh, definitely. But what about the, um, the um, what I found interesting in the report as well, or in this study, was I think when you, when you talk about people continuing to buy bigger trucks and more heavy duty vehicles, for some reason, we tend to focus on Alberta or think, oh, that's probably happening in Alberta. Yeah. Uh, but this was right across the country. It is. That really struck me as well. I mean, this is, one of the things that was interesting is we had seen a pretty big improvement in our average fleet fuel consumption from 2005 to 2013. And that's largely due to those fuel economy standards I mentioned. But since 2013, for roughly the past five, six years, it's been flatlined. And cars and trucks themselves are improving uh, within their own class. But what we're seeing is this big shift towards people buying the truck category over cars in the last uh, six or seven years. And, and you're right, it's, it's, <laughs> we point to Alberta for, for the truck buying, but it's, it's across the country. Um, Within that truck category are things like um, compact SUVs and crossovers, which um, you know may be a bit more prevalent than the pickup truck, certainly in the lower mainland. Um, but but they are higher fuel um, consumption than you know the traditional sedans and coupes of old, and so that big shift is really uh, slowing down our improvements in terms of average fuel economy and having a a sizable effect on our overall emissions from from transportation sector. And you talked to you about where we're at as far as the manufacturers and making vehicles more fuel efficient. Uh, it seems like it's a bit of uh, something that would be pushed more by the consumer in that, like you said, if, you, if you're driving long distances or you're in a position where driving, it's not, uh, it's, it's not something you can just stop doing. Uh, you would think consumers would be pushing for that or wanting the more fuel efficient vehicles as well. It is. It's a, it's a push and a pull, absolutely. So, you know, as consumers rise up and demand certain things, you know, in a competitive market for cars, the manufacturers will respond. But there's some sluggishness there. And I think there's also a preference by manufacturers. You know, the margins are higher on SUVs than they are on sedans. And so marketing efforts go towards those. And that, in part, uh, forms preferences for uh, um, consumers. So there's, there's a little bit of... Um, uh, you know, imperfect competition, if you will, in terms of um, uh, not pure pure demand, uh, demanding um, more efficient cars. They're sort of kind of being swayed into something that's perhaps more than they they need. I think we're going to see that, especially in British Columbia, in terms of electric vehicles. There's, there's undoubtedly going to be a larger demand, given where your gas prices are, given how big the incentives are. If you're choosing between, say, a Honda Civic and uh, uh, a mid-range electric vehicle like a Hyundai Ioniq, it's almost a no-brainer now to go with the Ioniq in terms of the fuel savings you're going to get. But if you go to the uh, go to the store to try to buy one of those cars, they're unlikely to be immediately available. Your selection to choose from is far more limited. And so you're going to see demand asking for something that isn't necessarily there. Uh, that'll probably correct over time, but it, it will take some time. And I think still there is uh, the a bit of uh, the anxiety over charging stations and the how the range that you get on an electric vehicle, depending on what you need your vehicle for. Uh, there's still it feels like we're not quite there yet, where there's that that complete comfort with going that route. 
Absolutely. I think, you know, for me, that's sort of a perception over a reality thing. Um, you know, I, I think it's absolutely true. There's a concern. It's a, it's a new thing. Uh, how easy is it to charge? How reliable will they be? How will cold weather affect them? Because they're not um, broadly used. We, you know, many of us don't have a, a peer network that has electric vehicles. It's sort of uncertain. So it, it's easy to, to remain uh, cautious. But the range that we are seeing out of these vehicles uh, and the performance and the, and the newer batteries, their, their, their life, how long they're lasting, it suggests to me that, you know, as more and more people uh, move into electric vehicles, it's going to have this sort of network effect, the snowball. So it's going to pass along the sort of positive feedback to others and, and break down some of that barrier and that anxiety. Um, because the range, um, for example, like a Hyundai Kona, which is uh, one of the cheaper electric vehicles, not a cheap car overall, it has a range of 400 kilometers, which is more than sufficient for most drivers. All right. Well, it's an interesting conversation, and you're right. It will be uh, interesting to see if uh, habits change and purchasing uh, habits change uh, in the near future. Uh, Blake Schaefer, thank you so much for your time this morning. You bet. Thanks for having me. There have been repeated calls for a public inquiry into money laundering in B.C. And those calls got even louder this past week when on May 9th, two reports that were made public looking at money laundering in the province. And one of the numbers that is being talked about at length is the money laundering and how much it's believed was laundered through real estate in BC. The number, about $5 billion, has been put out there. And in the news reports from this past week, we were also told that that could have led to about a 5% increase in prices. That's the average. So many saying if that's the average, then it's likely much more in Metro Vancouver. But where do the numbers actually come from? Well, joining me to talk a little bit more about that now is Joanna Connolly. Editorial Director of Glacier Real Estate. Joanna, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Joe. Uh, you've written about this and the $5 billion number and how uh, Professor Maureen Maloney came up with that. Uh, what are some of your concerns about that number? Um, well, I wouldn't describe them as concerns, Joe, and I do want to praise you this by saying I'm in no way criticizing the expert panel's uh, report on money laundering. I think they did a fantastic job given a completely, literally impossible task as money laundering is so opaque. So I want to start by saying that. But um, I just think it's really important for people to realize, and the panel has made it clear in this clear in its report, that this $5.3 billion number, it really is quite a wild, what I would call a guesstimate. Um, it's it's a guess based on an extrapolation that's based on another calculation that's used using a standardized model. So it's sort of three layers of guessing and, and that kind of level of Chinese whisper really means that the number is arguably meaningless. And, and there's a lot of transparency about this in the report. And you talk about this and you've written about this, uh, that uh, the number of 5.3 billion, which is the one uh, that's been reported, that's been put out there. But then uh, you say we're possibly uh, 800 million. That's a huge range. Yeah, so that's the range that the um, expert panel put in their report. Obviously, people love to uh, put uh, right in their headlines about the high figure. Um, but that is based on an assumption that's... Uh, First of first of all, an assumption that 7.4 billion in total was laundered uh, in BC, not necessarily in real estate, but just in BC generally, and that if all of that money 
was invested, then 5.3 billion of it would have been laundered through real estate. However, uh, they created a range saying if, say, only a third of it was invested, then that would be more like um, less, you know, less than a billion. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a huge range. Um, and, but it's also worth noting that that range in itself, even up to 5.3 billion, is on the low side because of the uh, model that was used to calculate Canada's overall figure, which could be wildly underestimating the amount of money laundering. So it's incredibly vague, Jill. And, and really, there wasn't any better way that the team could have come up with this number. Uh, but it's, it's very clearly acknowledged that we don't know how much money is being laundered through BC real estate. Uh, right. And you, you touch on this as well in that it's not as though you just ask people, hey, are you laundering money? Did you buy this house with dirty money? And they're coming forward yeah. and saying, yes, I absolutely did that. Exactly. I mean, what else could the expert panel have done? Really, you can't interview every single person involved in a real estate transaction uh, within any given year and and expect to get an accurate measure of of money laundered. Um, So, you know, they had to go with a model. Uh, That's not to say that the investigations, the many hundreds of interviews and surveys and and questions that the panel asked um, was, was without value. Like, far from it, quite the opposite. I think it really exposed all of the um, the red flags that uh, people within the industry need to look for, all of the different ways in which money can be laundered. And from that, the panel was able to make its 29 recommendations. But I just think it's important that people realize that this number that we're banding around it isn't really a real number. And it's also, we we tend to, to connect the dots, I think. Like you said, it's such an opaque thing. So we're looking at this and trying to figure out what's going on. And we, we often lump in, and there was a lot of talk of students and homemakers, people with no income that were purchasing multi-million dollar properties, which looks bizarre and strange, but there could be cases, and I'm not suggesting that they're all above board, but there certainly could be cases and people who own uh, businesses or who are are financially vulnerable will sometimes, if there's a spouse who's not uh, having an income, uh, will put Mm. it in the spouse's name for protection. It's not as though, uh, it's, it's not as though we can say every single one of those cases must be money laundering. No, absolutely. I mean, far from it. And I think it would be a terrible thing to make the assumption that people are necessarily laundering money in those situations. They might be speculating. They might be parking their, their money um, in uh, what is essentially an empty home, possibly. They might be doing all sorts of things that we might not like. That doesn't mean they're laundering money. So it, that, I think it's an important distinction to make. And, uh, and one that the BC government is going to have a, a hard time really getting to the bottom of. And, and so if the number that was put out there, the, this range of 800 million to 5.3 billion, and basing that on, on the other number that, uh, that uh, dirty money across the country in 2018 is somewhere around the $46.7 billion figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if we take those for what they are, how can we take the 5% to being told that the money laundering in BC led to the average increase in price of 5%? Um, that's just the assumption because it's about 5% of 
home purchases, if it was that amount, it would have affected about 5% of home purchases. Um, And uh, I'm not clear exactly on the math behind it, but it's assumed that that would have affected prices in 2018, all of this is for, um, by about 5%. But of course, that percentage is across the whole of BC. And as you mentioned in your intro, Jill, um, we know that uh, that things happen very differently in Metro Vancouver and, and any provincial average is likely to be much higher um, in Metro Vancouver. So, um, you know, we can say, well, hey, maybe it was 10% of purchases were affected here. Does that mean that, uh, that prices were affected 10% as well? Um, so, uh, again, it really impossible to say. Uh, do you think it will become easier or more clear once we have uh, in place uh, one of the measures that the current government uh, bringing in uh, as far as the, the registry so people, we will know who owns what properties? I think it will become clearer. Uh, whether it will become actually clear, I don't know. I mean, we we do know that uh, these people are unscrupulous, and I'm sure there are all kinds of ways in which um, people will find to get around any new regulations. But I do think that, you know, if all 29 recommendations by the, the um, expert panel on money laundering are implemented um, bit by bit, it could be made clearer. And, and I have to say, a lot of those um, recommendations are um, about making sure that our federal counterparts and, and other provinces are also, you know, doing these kinds of things, having registers uh, um, of ownership and beneficial ownership and, and really making sure that financial reporting requirements are rigorous across the country uh, because, you know, if if only 7.6 or 7.4 um, billion dollars is in BC real estate, and there's 46 odd million billion dollars across Canada, then that means that there's a lot of uh, money laundering in other provinces across the country too. Uh, indeed. Uh, do you think, though, are we are we too quick then to look at these numbers and to take them as absolute truth because people are wanting answers when it comes to money laundering? Yeah, and I think that's really why I wrote the article that I wrote, Jill. It's, you know, a lot of people will read a headline and possibly not even read the whole of the rest of the story that makes it clear that these are, you know, estimates based on other estimates. Um, so, you know, I've seen a lot of response to our um, our uh, story that we wrote about the reports originally online saying, um, you know, this sounds about right <laughs> and that sort of thing. It's like, well, we don't know what this number really is. So let's just uh, be a little bit more measured in our response and make sure that we're actually reading around the subject before we start reacting. All right. Uh, it's a very interesting uh, take on this, an interesting piece. Uh, Joanna, we'll leave it there, but thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right, we've been talking a fair amount about uh, the new photo radar. We're not supposed to call it that, but it is a camera that will take your photo if you are caught speeding through an intersection and you will get a ticket in the mail. So it certainly sounds similar to photo radar that we've had before. Uh, let's talk more about this now, though, with Grant Gottgetro, who is a forensic consultant, also a retired police corporal uh, offering services for traffic offenses. Uh, good morning to you. 
Good morning. Uh, what is your take on this, uh, the fact that we are going to be seeing these cameras uh, posted at the uh, various intersections in BC that have been deemed uh, the highest uh, risk? Well, I feel a little better that it's not photo radar. My understanding is it's uh, a different type of uh, equipment that's used. It has something to do with sensors and timing the vehicle between two points. Um, However, you know, I'm still like, okay, I'm, I'm not as willing to accept the word of the, of the government so graciously. I know, you know, people seem to say, oh, I have no problem throwing more money at the government. They want more money out of my pocket. Not a problem. Um, what I want to, like for me, my concern is the causal factors at these, um, at these intersections with the collisions. It's not just, okay, this is a high crash location. What's important is the time these are occurring, and what are the causes of the crash. Are they red lights? I don't have a problem with red light camera. I don't think anyone has a problem with the red light camera because it's kind of indisputable. There's a picture that shows your car before the stop line and the red light. So you're kind of, you know, you're kind of, you're kind of stuck on that one. Um, the issue with uh, the speeding offenses is a little bit more dynamic. And, of course, if you're going to say, well, this is a high crash location, and the, the, the peak time of these crashes have all occurred between 9 a.m. and 3 p.m., then that's when you should be running these cameras. If they're running them at 3 in the morning, catching someone all by themselves going through at 20K over, then people could say, well, that's a little bit skeptical, and that could smell a little bit more of a cash grab because it's, not, it's outside of when the crashes occur. So we have to do a little bit more critical thinking and fact-finding and not just simply accept the word of the government because they say, hey, We've ran the numbers, and this is a high crash location. Okay, if they're all related to speed, then fine. But they're also saying, well, this is a high crash location because everyone's on their phone. Well, make up your mind, because I think as, as taxpayers, you've you got to get pretty sick and tired of how much money we're throwing to the government under all these uh, reasons and excuses. Oh, carbon tax this and tax that and this, that, and everything else. It's like, okay, just take my money. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, uh, and I think that's probably what a lot of British Columbians uh, are feeling. Uh, is there a concern that, that in doing this, and, and I suppose the difference uh, also in this is that there will be signs out, posted for people if you're approaching the intersection, so you will know that you're approaching an intersection with one of these cameras. Uh, is there a concern that it could actually change driving behavior, though, uh, because it could be possibly more dangerous if people then start throwing on the brakes? Listen, um, um, my son listens to me. He says, Dad, you always say listen. It's true, I do. So listen. Um, <laughs> um, the fact is, how long have the cell phone laws been out? Since 2010. And people are still stupid enough to pick up their phone, right? So, I mean, if you're, if you're dumb enough to pick up your phone, you deserve a ticket. If you see these signs and it's telling you ahead, well, if people are going to dynamite their brakes, well, I think my understanding is if I was, you know, if I wanted to be a responsible um, government official, if the average crashes occur at 30K over the limit, then that's where you set it at, right? right. I don't think people going 30K over the limit, um, you know, that's not, a, that's not a fair speed to be going. So, yeah, you should be getting ticketed for that at the end of the day. Um, but you can't predict the unpredictability of drivers. Some are going to, I'm sure, dynamite their brakes. But red light cameras have been around a long time, and I still I don't see anyone dynamiting their brakes because there's a red light camera there. So, and, and that's where the government is getting their stats from is all the red light tickets.
Right. So um, my biggest concern as a retired police officer is I don't like to see double standards. And that's what concerns me is there is a set of laws and expectations placed upon the um, hardworking traffic officers when it comes to speed enforcement, but it doesn't seem to be the same um, responsibility when it's a government implemented program, because if for speeding tickets for police officers in British Columbia, they have to pre-test and post-test the equipment they're using that day. So how often do you think these speed cameras are going to be checked for accuracy? They're going to check them daily. I highly doubt that. If they do, that's great. I suspect it'll probably be more. I could be wrong, but they're not telling us anything, right? So there's all secret, secret squirrel. Oh, try and guess and figure it out. Well, it'll probably be maybe once a month. So what happens then if the, if 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 they test the equipment, they go, oh, oh, it's out. There's something wrong with it. Are they going to cancel all the tickets between that time and the time it was last checked and was working? I doubt it. The government's going to give us back money. That's a funny one. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh, so, for sure. So for me, it's about the. It, it seems to be there's a double standard. And if they're going to check, if this is what this is what annoys me, is the government officials. They smile. They go, "Oh, trust us. We're the government. Give me a break. Be transparent." They talk about transparency. Then be transparent. What kind of equipment are you using? How often is it going to be checked for accuracy? That's pretty important because those are the requirements that are placed upon the police officers in British Columbia. Well, and it, it seems like that's one of the reasons why this could be open up, open for a lot of challenges. Uh, the other one for me, too, is if it's a ticket that's, a, that's a, a, a certain amount of money, I get that. And even if it's a cash grab, even if people think it's just a cash grab, fine. Well, uh, that's yeah, that's but, what it is. But if it's a ticket with points, you then have to prove who was driving the vehicle. And it, and that's not up to, to me, the, the owner of the car. If I say I wasn't driving my vehicle that day, I lent it out, uh, I shouldn't get the points. Doesn't that open it up for challenges? Well, it, there, there's but again, what they're saying is they're trying to minimize the they're trying to minimize the cut. Oh no, no, it's not points. It doesn't go on your driving record. You're only getting the ticket as the owner of the vehicle. I'm still paying the money. Yeah. <laughs> they don't get they don't get it right. They think well, we just take away the points. Well, which they have to because they can't identify a driver. So they're not doing you a favor. They have to give the ticket as registered owner because the driver cannot be identified. They cannot charge as the driver. So it goes to you as the registered owner. So you're right. You lend your car out, and uh, a week or two, they won't even tell you how long after the, 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 the speed has been obtained that they give you the ticket. I mean, this is transparency. This is rubbish. So it's a week later. It's 10 days later. It's two weeks later. You get a ticket in the mail. You go, I don't remember that. How can I even argue that? I don't remember going. I went to that intersection. I don't even know how fast I was going. Well, they're saying you went this fast. Well, if the government says I'm going that fast, I must be going that fast. Right. Everyone's so for this program. I listened um, a little while ago. You had some callers in. I was different. That was your radio station. Mm -hmm. And people go, oh, no, I'm all for this. This is great. Yeah. They always say that until they get the ticket. Then suddenly it's the worst calamity in the history of life. So (laughs) whatever. Right. I mean, I heard it all. Don't forget. I heard it all during my career. Oh, there's speeders in my school. You got to come down to our school zone. It's awful. They're speeding. And the second I stopped them for speeding, I wasn't speeding. Oh, please. Right? So give me a break. <laughs> so it's about transparency. And that's what the government, if you've noticed, the government has been very secret about a lot of stuff. 
Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not a conspiracy. I probably sound like a nut, but I'm not a conspiracy theorist. But if you're going to talk transparency, then walk the talk. Tell us what the equipment is. Tell us. If they don't want to tell you the threshold, that's fine. Whatever. It is what it is. But what kind of equipment are you using? How reliable is it? How often is it checked for accuracy? What happens with, when it's found to be out? Because nothing is infallible. I, some guy phoned. Well, I was doing your show last year, uh, and uh, some guy phoned in. Oh, no, this, this equipment's really reliable. Nothing is infallible, so please give me a break. All right. right? Well, yeah, no, indeed. Uh, Grant, we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time. But thank you no so much uh, for joining us today. Appreciate uh, oh, you, you taking the time. Like I said, I don't have a problem with all of this. It just there just needs to be some accountability, and we've got to make sure that it's that it's a, that that it's um, reliable. That's all. All right, sounds good, Grant. Thanks again so much. My pleasure. Take care. Well, just yesterday, I was reporting on a story in Surrey. You might have seen it. It was surveillance footage that showed a police takedown at a complex in Wally. And one car drove into the gate. A truck then blasted through the gate inside that car after police arrested two individuals. A third one got away. Uh, They found latex gloves, a hunting knife, as well as a semi-automatic collapsible pistol carbine. And that story is not unique. We talk about stories like this quite often. Unfortunately, well, on Wednesday, Surrey Cloverdale MLA Marvin Hunt brought in, uh, introduced a bill that aims to have more consequences for anyone caught driving around with an illegal firearm in the vehicle. So would this actually make a difference when it comes to gang activity and violence on the streets? Uh, Marvin Hunt joins me on the line now. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure, Jill. Good morning. Uh, How would your bill, the bill that you introduced, actually make a difference? Well, let's take the situation that you just said, uh, that if the, the police find this weapon in the vehicle, who do they charge? Uh, usually it's an illegal weapon, uh, can't be traced to any of those that are in the vehicle, so therefore all that the police can do is confiscate the weapon, and there are no consequences uh, for anyone who is in that vehicle. What this bill is proposing is that we use provincial law under the Motor Vehicle Act uh, to say that the driver is responsible, uh, that if you're driving with a firearm uh, in your vehicle, uh, doesn't matter whose uh, firearm it is, uh, and, and if it can't be identified as to whose it is, then the driver is held responsible for that weapon being there. Uh, But under federal law, it is illegal to drive around with a firearm in your vehicle. Uh, Even if it's a registered uh, pistol, it's still, if you had it on the front seat of your car, that's illegal. No, you're absolutely right. And this is why these, this is going under provincial law, because if you'll remember what happened with uh, drinking and driving, we had a similar thing. Uh, you can get uh, charged under the Criminal Code of Canada, and then you had lawyers that specialized in getting people off. And they had a 100% record because there's lots of technicalities uh, within the criminal code and all the processes for it to be able to get off. Uh, what we did was we created provincial legislation that brought instant penalties to the situation. And we find drinking driving has gone down tremendously because you don't end up with a criminal record. It works under provincial law. This is exactly the same thing. Yes, instead of going under the criminal code, we go under the Motor Vehicle Act, which then gets fines, potential of imprisonment or a driver's license suspension. Uh, but doesn't it seem, uh, like, to, to imagine a scenario where, uh, say, a police officer has pulled 
over a vehicle for whatever reason, maybe part of an ongoing investigation. They find illegal firearms, even just one in the vehicle. There's two or three people in the vehicle. Uh, Does it not seem like a very strange scenario that the police officer doesn't arrest them, all of them at that point, because it is illegal to have that firearm under existing law in the car? Well, the reality is, is that they don't get charged. All the police can actually do is confiscate uh, the weapon because everyone says, it's not mine. I don't know anything about it. It has nothing to do with me. So how can they show that connection? And that's the frustration and the problem that the, the, the police have. And that's exactly why this bill is here. Uh, But imagine a scenario then if there was, say, a a large amount of drugs or or even a dead body in the trunk. It's not like anybody, everybody in the car could just say, oh, it's not it's not mine. I have nothing to do with that. And the cops just say, "Okay, well, on your way then. Well, uh, from our consultations that we had and our discussions that we had uh, with local police, this is a problem. They can't deal with it. Uh, the, the burden of proof is such that they can't deal with it, and they have said this is the problem and uh, this is the way around it. Uh, criminals generally don't care about the law. That's uh, what makes them criminals. Do you really think, though, in this case, so if this bill was passed, d- does bringing in this level of a fine, possible jail time, a, a traffic infraction, having your license taken away. Do do you think criminals will care? I mean, they're already breaking the law. Well, no, you're, you're absolutely right. But the, the issue right now is there are zero consequences. At least this brings something into the scenario. And, and that is the point. And particularly, let's, let's take the fact that the driver is the innocent one and the driver doesn't know anything about it. Well, he'll start to be more careful about who's in the vehicle with him and who he's driving around. Uh, because let's also be honest with ourselves, the criminals are also deceivers and they don't always tell the truth to their friends uh, as to what they're up to and what they're doing. Uh, So again, it's a situation of simply making someone responsible for the situation and bringing some consequences to bear uh, so that at least the message starts to get out there that uh, you need to be careful who your friends are and what you're doing. Do you think that's happening a lot, though, that there is a driver who's oblivious to the fact that his passengers or that there's a, a gun in his vehicle? Well, you know, actually, I, I had one the other day uh, where where we had a friend who was simply loaning his car to loaned his car to his uh, cousin. You know, and, and and you know, it's a thing that he just didn't think twice about it, and that was the problem. He didn't think twice. He discovered that uh, his uh, car was being used in illegal activity, and all of a sudden he was charged, and uh, because he was the owner of the vehicle, and so he's got a real challenge on his hands. And uh, eventually, it worked out. But uh, no, there are naive people people that trust their cousins and their friends and uh, and and we need to uh, help motivate them not to do that and think about twice think about the issue twice uh, so why not go the route then of uh, making sure that the federal law isn't enforced more why do we need this additional law well, because we have a huge problem with the criminal code uh, and the enforcement of it through the courts. And, and I, again, I go back to the drinking and driving uh, situation where you had lawyers advertising that they have 100% uh, record of getting people off of drinking and driving. Didn't matter whether they were guilty or innocent, they made sure that they got them off. There were no zero consequences except for paying a fortune for a lawyer. Uh, this is designed to at least have some consequences, uh, and yes, they're not as big as the consequences you can have under the criminal code, but you also don't have uh, all of the process and, uh, and, and in fact, the pain uh, of the police officers doing all their work, doing it exactly in one little tiny error or one technicality, all of a sudden gets the the, uh, the charges thrown out. 
But couldn't we see the same scenario under a provincial law that uh, somebody caught in that type of scenario would lawyer up and still find a way to beat the charge? Well, it tends to be, it tends to not work that. And again, I have to go back to the drinking and driving situation to use it as the example, is we don't see that layering up of it because the consequences are not a criminal code offense that you have to carry for the rest of your life. So yes, it's a, it's a lesser uh, penalty, but at least it is some consequences that are there. Uh, what kind of reaction have you had uh, since introducing this? Uh, positive reaction, uh, certainly from the police uh, uh, members uh, that have talked to me or I've talked to, they're all really happy with it because at least they're seeing some consequences to it. Uh, certainly, some people, just as you have done, uh, said, well, it's already illegal. What's the point of this? Not realizing the challenge uh, that is involved in it uh, with the proof and all that that's necessary for a criminal code offense. Uh, which, which I think is 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 what's uh, can be a, a bit jarring about this, because what you're effectively saying is we have a federal law that's not being enforced. That's correct. That's exactly the problem. And again, I, I use the example of drinking and driving. We used to have lots of them. There used to be lots of challenges with it. Now it's relatively quiet. Uh, because, again, the, the whole scenario has changed and, and people are being much more responsible. Now, of course, I'm not negating things like Mothers Against Drunk Driving, those sorts of things, but I'm saying that in the generality you're seeing a real change in attitude uh, uh, that has also come about as, as a result of these consequences being in there uh, for people that are drinking and driving, and I believe the same thing can happen here. Uh, even though we're talking about, I mean, it's different in that uh, somebody who's a drunk driver isn't a, a criminal. It's somebody that has exercised very poor judgment, whereas a criminal is somebody who, who flouts the law and does so knowingly. Well, you're, you're right there, but by the same token, we have a range of them uh, because, you know, everyone isn't the hardened uh, criminal uh, that has a weapon in there. There's some people that are foolish uh, that, that think, well, I need to have one of these to protect me from bullies, to protect me from this, that, and the other thing, and we hear about that in the schools even, in the high schools. So it's, it's one that there are poor decisions that are being made by young people today, and we're trying to, uh, you know, with, with the absolute criminal, hey, we, it's a whole different thing. Uh, we're trying to, to deal with the uh, lesser situations of people who are, as you said, making poor decisions, get themselves involved with the wrong people. Uh, that's what ends up leading them into the, the heavier gang stuff and that. But most of the uh, shots fired and that sort of thing that we're finding is with the low-level uh, uh, drug dealers, not with the guys that have been at this for years. All right, we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time. Uh, Marvin Hunt, thank you so much. I do appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you. Absolute pleasure, Jill. Thank you. All right.